Welcome to the Raises.com Capital Raises show. Today I'm with David Weinstock. David had three multi-hyphenate careers before launching a real estate fund. David, nice to meet you. It is a pleasure to meet you. Thank you for having me on. I, I appreciate it. No worries. We're going to have some fun here. So the first question I like to ask is, uh, everyone has a story. So when it comes to launching your real estate fund, what's your story? So I have an untraditional story in that I didn't start out in real estate. I didn't start out in private equity. Um, you know, that claim to fame of three different, you know, hyphenated careers. I probably had more than that. I've worked in lots of different industries and I started my career um, as a computer geek. I was fixing computers in office parks and being dropped off my, my parents when I was 15 and 16 years old to kind of be tech support. Um, and that actually played really well in that started bringing up my career from the technology side. Um, I worked as a consultant in my teenage years for a bunch of older guys. And we worked at a company that's no longer here, but a lot of people know, Polaroid. So I'm out of Boston, Massachusetts. Polaroid used to have their headquarters here. I went to every single Polaroid site and touched every single computer in every single location as a teenager, helping them put their first network in. Um, so that was how my career started. And then I basically got involved in startup consulting companies, implementing customer relationship management systems. And I was really into the startup culture, really loved that environment. Um, I joined a company that had 300 people at the time. They started getting big and went international and the dot-com first was going. And then I rapidly started jumping startup to startup to startup until it was me and three guys staring at each other in a conference room going, what did we do? From there, we built a consulting company, um, wound up being sold to private equity. It was my first taste of what private equity was. Um, and then I went on to corporate America after that. Um, but I can't sit still. And so in corporate America, I put myself out of a job every two years, and then they give me something else to do. So I got a chance to do a lot of different roles and they'd give me a couple guys, we'd build a team out of it. And then once that was working here, take that back, do it. Until at the end of the journey, the, uh, the company was brought, it's a public company, it was brought private. And I put myself out of a job and they said, well, we can't invent a new job for you, but you can work at other places in the company. What do you want to do? And I remember this, this memory so vividly seven years ago from today, um, I'm sitting with my wife and you know, I've got these different opportunities to one of 30 of these guys and one of 20 of these guys. And I didn't want to do any of it. And my wife kind of gave me the ultimatum. It's like, if not now, when? And she had met me when I was in the startups and doing all this stuff. And she thought I was just going to do another startup. So fast forward, I actually became a developer. Um, I didn't know that's what I was going to become. But it happened because I locked up two projects. I'm in the Boston area. We do a lot of condo conversions here. Two, three, four family buildings that you got down to the studs and rebuild them. Uh, except I had a little problem with our very first property in that we got a contractor with a price that was too good to be true. We gave him a deposit. He didn't start. Comes back, oh, I need a little more money because it's a bigger job. And we gave him the deposit. And he didn't start. Started saying, hey, if you don't start, I need to get my money back. And um, lo and behold, he started. Got the entire building out. Everything's gone. And then a week later, I get a fine from the city. 
and a stop work order for doing work without a permit. Call the contractor, he's nowhere to be found. Hire a lawyer, finally track him down, sued him. It's a, it's, a, it's a long story, but but bottom line is we wound up suing this guy. We got 70 cents every dollar back, and it forced me to partner with a builder. And in that process, I learned about everything about building a house. I worked with the planning boards, the building department, and I went everywhere with the builder. I came to the job site every day. So I became a developer. And then two units became four units, four units became seven units, and I'm doing subdivisions, value-add real estate, start buying apartment complexes. And that kind of launched me into kind of where I'm at today, which is, you know, grouping investors together, buying large commercial assets, um, et cetera, and then moving into the fund, which I'm actually in pre-launch right now. Um, so whenever people see this, this is probably pre-launch to my fund, um, but we'll be going live this quarter. So that was a long-winded answer. Oh, fantastic. I mean, it's important to go through the uh, the roller coaster ride, you know, to become a fund manager, right? So like I'm, I'm thinking like when it comes to now that you're at the cusp of actually launching and managing this real estate fund what are i guess even in investing what do you think are some of the most common myths misconceptions uh along the way whether it be in real estate investing you know real estate developments i think when i first saw people who were starting their own funds or were successful fund managers they made it look so effortless so easy and they seemed so on top of things and what I realized, you know, just trying to get my fund off, off the ground or even just doing some of the earlier investments, it's a lot of work. And it's not one particular place you focus. I mean, we know it's a lot of work. That's, I mean, everyone knows there's work to be had. But again, they make it look so, so easy. You see the social media posts, you see people out there. But you don't know how many hours goes into becoming really good at your craft and your trade really establishing those deep relationships, whether it's with investors or with sponsors or whether you're sponsoring your own deals. You know, in, in my case, you know, I started doing projects in the Atlanta market, but I've been traveling down there for two, three years, building my network and getting to know people. I was on a plane every six to eight weeks because I thought it was important to have local boots on the ground. And so as I am pivoting to start and launch this fund, you know, we've been doing syndications and doing joint ventures before this. It's important to have trusted local partners to get the work done because as good as I may be at learning pieces of how to build a building or do it, I have partners that have built 4,000 units or have been doing this for 20, 30, 40 years. That's a level of experience that I don't have the time <laughs> to, to amass and they're better at it than me. It just, it, it plays to their strengths and I need to play to mine. So that was one thing that, you know, that first launch of that fund is really important to know how much work building that base is before the fund itself goes live. So the number of investor calls that I've already had, the number of sponsors that I've talked to, the pipeline that's already there. Um, you know, when we turn the fund on, we'll have multiple assets ready to go. We'll have multiple investors ready to go, which means we're off and running, where I think other people just say, hey, my doors are open. And then they have to say, all right, I spent all this money and I put all this time but I don't have a deal yet. How do I do it? And I don't have investors yet. How do I find them? You see, exactly. And, and when it comes to uh, all the things that you've learned, I mean, because you went through the, the typical, you know, evolution of like, you know, the results in different companies, you know, investing in working of syndicators and now launching your own private equity fund. What would you say are some of the, like the returns and the terms of the deal 
uh, in terms of what people are willing to expect and, and what are some ways and, and tactics in making sure that you you have your finger pulse like on the on the pulse of the market so that you you can offer terms that make sense for potential investors. Yeah, no, we work really hard to make sure that the terms we're offering are going to be attractive to investors. We want to be different than everyone else. Um, we, with my background as a developer, I've gotten really good about speaking the right language with that type of sponsor. And we tend to either co-GP and be partners with them or be early on where they have something they're working on, but they haven't really decided if it's a project yet. So we get some really good early access to projects before they even kind of come on. Um, you know, a lot of off-market stuff, a lot of things that are through the, through the network only. So that's one piece. And then the second is, you know, obviously we have an investor community that likes you know, I call them, you know, mid-tier deals. So most of our deals are probably below the 20 to $25 million range. So we might do anything as low as like four or 5 million and up into that range. And we can get slightly better returns than you might see on the larger institutional. So if larger institutional, and again, these are just example returns. This isn't actual returns. I'm not, you know, we know that there's certain guidelines I, I can't you know, speak about here. And I want to make sure I'm not misrepresenting, but, you know, Talking to a lot of the institutional folks that I know, you know, the returns are probably between 11 to 14 percent um, because we work on smaller deals with probably quick returns or doing a little, you know, finding more of the diamond in the rough and we spend a little more time cultivating them. We tend to do much better. And I'd say that our average returns are probably, you know, north of 20 percent. But again, every deal is different and, and you know, everything is different within a fund and, and how we're targeting it. But we've been very fortunate so far. Yeah, exactly. And obviously everything here is for informational purpose, but it's good to have a range. So when, when it comes to the types of investors, whether it be their demographics, their uh, the check size, what are some of the, the patterns that you notice like without, throughout your career? Because we have our own observation, but I'm curious on yours in, in terms of you know how big the check size is, where they're from, are, they, are these investors that are more small limited partners that are already in many deals, are they more novice uh, in accredited investors, or are they larger institutions that uh, are, are, are putting capital into the in, into the deals throughout your, um, both throughout the early career and in the last career? So I guess if I were to summarize that question, because it was a long-winded question, what demographics have you worked with for, in terms of investors in the past, and what are you looking to work with in the future? Yeah, I think I think we're being pulled upstream based on just the demand of what the capital markets are today. But how we started and what we did, we tended to have more of a sophisticated plus investor. So we have folks that are, you know, professionals in business roles for the most part, doctors, lawyers, accountants, you know, tech professionals that have a little more sophistication. We really pride ourselves on educating our investors. We want an informed investor to be able to understand the deal terms, to ask the right questions and move through. And we've been very fortunate that because we have an educated investor base, you know, we get a good check size on our initial, you know, investments and those grow over time as they get to know us. We've done a number of joint ventures with family offices or, or groups of people that have come together um, to pool capital. Um, we haven't done a lot of institutional capital, but where we are right now is we're talking to a lot more family offices and larger high net worth individuals that are looking to write a single check or one or two checks on a deal. And, you know, that's changed a little bit of, of what we hunt for and, and how we do it. But um, yeah, that's that's the range. But we, for the most part, we're not institutional guys. Um, we're not looking for the pension funds. 
Um, we're not looking for $60 million you know, acquisitions at this point in our trajectory. We might do a separate fund that does that in a couple of years, but um, I will also share that we are working regionally in a lifestyle, so we're not a national brand and, and don't expect to. We're predominantly you know, East Coast to the Southeast, and that's you know where we like to be. Good relationships, good partnerships, people we've known for a while. Got it. And so with that, could you speak to us a bit more about the the investment strategy? Like, would it be, and I think we were talking a bit offline, but would it be more, you know, you you have a background development, so like a you know, five-year term, and then it's like, you know, you're buying and you're doing some value add uh, to existing properties that are cash flow in addition to some development. So I'm just curious on that uh, in terms of the- Yeah, the, the investment strategy, I mean, a lot of people will tell you it's opportunistic. I mean, and, and it is. I mean, we look for good deals and if it's a good deal, we'll present it to our investors. And we'll, if it's a really good deal, it, it'll probably go in the fund. And we'll have a customizable fund, which that is really unique to begin with in that it allows the investors to actually earmark specific assets within the fund that they want to deploy their capital to versus just a blind fund. Um, but we we do a mix. So I think there's, Sometimes that we need some value add deals because they provide some cash flow as well as the upside and some development deals as well because they may not provide cash flow, but they provide a significantly higher return you know, on successful projects. And we would never put a development project into the fund or offer it to investors until after we've de-risked it. And just to, in case you're not familiar with the de-risking you know, concept, any type of land entitlement work we found a piece of land, we found an existing building, we want to turn it into large apartment buildings or something like that. We're going to go through all the approval steps and processes so that by the time an investor is seeing it, it's to physically build it. There's nothing, you know, nothing questionable. Could we build it? Is this approved? Is this something you can do? Because that's speculation. So we have a pot of money that we use purely for speculation, but we don't offer that to investors because we think there's too much downside risk, because if it doesn't get approved, you may not get the upside, you may not have that full path to do it. I think so by bringing a opportunity that we've already de-risked, we already have got it entitled, we've already gotten approved, that's just a different, it's a different beast. Now it's just a question of, we think it's gonna take three or four years to build this. We think it's gonna be worth this in the end. We have all the market comps to say so, and we've got a great rockstar team to build it. That's a great opportunity for some people. and so. You know, we we run the gamut, and that way we kind of have a more balanced portfolio. I, I like it, and I totally agree because when an investor doesn't have to take you know permitting risk, uh, zoning risk, licensing risk, you know, to prepare the land, uh, then it usually you know skips a lot of steps and a lot of uncertainty. So yeah, and, and let's be honest about the market that we're entering into right now. So there are times to build more, and there's times to do more value add. And all has to do with what type of assets are in the market and what's the replacement cost of doing it. So we know historically it is really hard to build net new housing in the country in many areas. Um, but there are certain metros in certain areas that have lowered the barriers and they're building a lot. So as the economy softens a little bit, I don't know if I want to be in the, the market where we're building a lot. You know, and so that might be more of a, a value add play in those markets where you have an older asset. Everyone's going for the shiny new object, but they're building 2000 units at a, at a clip. I'd be more than happy to take, you know, 100, 200 units that, you know, were built in 1980 
and bring them up to snuff. I think that's probably a better play. Whereas if I'm in a, you know, denser metro with higher barriers to entry and we get something approved any day, all day, because you know that before it even comes out of the ground, you've got people who want to put deposits on it. So I think the area really matters, but also where you are in the cycle. Oh, yeah. And, and it's funny. I was asking just about to go into that because because um, you already it looks like you're already taking steps and some serious steps to just make sure that through this market cycle, we're recording end of January 2023 at the time of this video or this audio, depending on where you're hearing it. So I guess when it comes to that, like, have you noticed any difference in terms of the debt that you're going to leverage? Has there been a change in that? Are, are you changing the loan to value? Yeah, I mean, so we're we're definitely, we're able to go a little slower on our deals to put the right type of debt in place. I've got two deals going on right now in the Carolinas. Um, one of them, we've got bridge financing on it. And another, we actually placed permanent debt on it now even though we'll probably refinance in two to three years. But there was a three point difference between the bridge and the permanent debt without a prepay penalty. And so when you look at what's going on, you know, there's more negotiations with the lenders today in terms of what they can bring to, to the deal. If you can't get on rate, I mean, just again, for historical context, rates today for you know, long-term finance are around 6%. Bridge debt's probably 9% plus, maybe 10%, depending on who you're talking to. Um, and so you have a huge range that's going on. But if you went back six months from now, rates were in the threes. So we're talking about more than a doubling of where we started out. And so we are looking at what makes sense. We're getting longer, you know, interest-only periods. We're negotiating with earnouts and doing loans that, Instead of doing a full refi, they're saying, well, if you're going to hit your NOI targets within a particular period of time, we're going to give you a little more juice along the way versus rewriting a new loan. And so I think the volume of loans has probably come down a bit, and they, they still need to do business. They still need to write them. Um, so their hands are tied in some pieces, but they're more flexible than others. Also, although I have not seen a lot of this yet, um, anecdotally from other you know, peers of mine that are buying and working in park buildings, they're seeing a lot more opportunities in the smaller mom and pop buildings, you know, the, the less than 150 ones, that a component of seller financing may exist. So you're trying to maintain your price, but you know, you're not going to get the full one finance or you want to you don't want to pay 10% to do it. And so you're getting more creative deals or people want a little more rescue financing because a lot of people on bridge debt without a cap on it and they're coming due are, are in trouble because the rates really ratcheted up on them. Yeah, you can get really those good are good deals, good opportunities for deals. Fantastic. I mean, it's nice to hear that at least, you know, you're seeing some lenders that are willing to accommodate later on instead of it just being, you know, a crazy amount of refis in, in the middle of the next uh, uh, wave of the economy. So yeah, I mean, these are cycles. I mean, I think the 3% world that we were living in was rare. And I think it is a more normal market for the long run at rates in the six and sevens. I don't think we're going to go back to the 80s when you know rates were 14, 15, 16% at different times. I, I think that's unhealthy. That's too high. But again, we've gone through so many strange events, you know, leading up to where we are today, whether it was COVID or, you know, you name it. So just a lot going on. 
yeah yeah it's been a really weird uh because the pandemic and you know the bull the, this huge bull market and everything so uh um yeah and hey you know this recession you know we're talking to one of our cfas and then there's this softening of um allegedly this softening of interest rates before the recession and so how that may or may not shorten it so um you know so i don't know there's a lot of chaos going on but 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 one thing is we're working with a lot of uh, real estate syndicators who are currently in that either real estate investment or syndicating world that you you know so far i mean you're you, you're already evolved to the like the, you're about to launch the real estate fund and you have evolved to this level but for those who are currently self-invested in real estate using only their own capital and then you know maybe a hard money lender or a lender or maybe people that are just syndicating um, I guess what is one key thing that uh, you would advise them uh, as they're going yeah. through market cycles or just in general? Yeah, I think it, it comes back to to do as I say, not as I do. Now, I mean, I, I think we're doing the right things. Two two things. I mean, I think I'm going to flip the the question a little bit, and whether it's this market cycle or a different market cycle, it's just a question of if they're in it, in it for the long run, and so. There's plenty of deals in every cycle, but you you can't do thin deals. You have to really do your homework, make sure it makes sense, pressure test everything you're doing. And I think for folks that are starting out or using your own capital, you don't always spend enough due diligence time doing that. And for someone who's syndicating and taking investors' money or for someone who's placing their own, um, as you scale, it becomes more important to make sure that you are stress testing things. So the cap rates of today will not be the cap rates of tomorrow. If you're not writing in a decompressed cap rate in your underwriting, um, you're probably missing the boat. If you expect that rents are gonna go up indefinitely at three, four, 5% or higher a year, that doesn't always hold true, especially in a market that's, that's softening. But I think there's a bigger piece here, and, and this is one where I wish I could learn from my future self. I already told you my story. I had an untraditional start into private equity, into real estate. Um, I did have some early forays into real estate. I bought my first multifamily in my 20s. But then I didn't do much because I was doing all these startups for 10, 15 years. And it's only really when I went full time did I, I figure this out. But I worked by myself for the first couple of years, my own projects, my own capital, et cetera. So I was, I was, you know, the alpha version. I'm the one who made the mistakes um, and I learned from them. But what I would do differently today is I would partner with people. This is a team sport. This is all about surrounding yourself with your tribe, surrounding yourself with people who, who uplift you and make you better and allow you to do more versus trying to go out on your own. And I think for every successful guru, fund manager, et cetera, there is a slew of people behind them and a, and a huge support structure and network. I mean, uh, you know, look at your organization, raises.com, look at, you know, the other groups that are out there. Like, this is not one person. They represent the collective knowledge of so many people. Um, that's what I would do differently. I would partner up earlier. I'd be open to that. I would test, um, you know, those early partnerships and doing more. Because um, it's scary when you do it by yourself, but if you have experienced partners and you can kind of grow together, I think you just move so much faster. I, I can speak for myself that if I know what I knew today and partnered the way I did now, 
uh, I'd be in a very different spot if I started this in my late 20s or early 30s. Yeah, well, well, thanks for sharing this. You just shared a shortcut, a uh, life shortcut, because we can't buy time, but we can only buy the, well, I guess this is probably, even, this is even free. We can only get access to the, uh, the experience and lessons that other people have gone through. So, uh, so the wisdom that you shared would uh, definitely go far. And, you know, I guess more generally speaking, when it comes to uh, the people on the buy side, you know, just if we're speaking generalities, um, what are some of the core problems that you can speak to in terms of like, is it capital preservation that limited partners struggle with, you know, based on your experience or, or deals like the ones that you're working on, or is it uh, capital appreciation? What are some of the core things that uh, JV partners, limited partners, or investors really struggle with? Uh, and, and what type of solutions at, at its core do, does your deal really solve? Yeah, I think for 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 my particular investors and the types of deals that I do, um, anything that's value add based is capital preservation first, and then looking for a term that beats the market. People who've got four hundred one ks in their and their stock portfolios have gotten crushed in the last you know eighteen months, and so unfortunately, if they're looking to retire in the next couple of years, they've got a long way to kind of dig this back out. The bull market's over. But real estate keeps producing. So it's a good alternative investment. Um, so that's one group. And the second is, you know, again, the development, which is a higher return. So I think, you know, the problem that I solve is I've got, you know, folks that were were like me, folks that are working corporate jobs, et cetera, that just kept trading their time for money and wanted to start getting some flexibility as they got older and wanted some financial flexibility. That is my audience. I mean, those are the folks that. This isn't Ferraris and private planes overnight, um, which some people may have a system or may have a, a path to it. It's the, there are solid ways to invest your capital to grow it over time that gives you an advantage to people who leave it in the market or people who don't invest in these types of assets. And so I'm, I'm the slow and steady beating the market, um, and trying to do good by all. I mean, I really want to lift all boats. I mean, something that you know we haven't really talked about um, much, but the deal is the last in my priority of figuring out what I should do every day. People first, then where am I doing business, and then the project. So if I'm not keeping my investors happy and providing the returns that I think they deserve and that I've suggested we can obtain, that's someone I don't want to let down. And then when I find the deals, if I partner with someone, I want to be a great partner with them. I don't want this to be one deal we do together. I want to be planning the next three, four, five, 10 years together. So it's those two pieces. I mean, I think that's the difference that I do. I'm very relationship driven. And so we're small, very personalized. Um, and we just want to keep keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, well, I, I can see that it works. It's good to hear. So, so if you were to... Uh, because I guess we're we're uh, winding down because uh, you you've given a lot of great gold nuggets. So I mean, but if you were to look at either either a mentor or a book, or if there is something that you could recommend in general uh, to the audience who are consists of both potential limited partners or, or other real estate investors, uh, what would you recommend to them? You know, I I don't want to be, you know, like everybody else, but I have to start with the gold standard, which is I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad when I was a teenager. 
And the one nugget that really stuck with me is the, the people who are working every day are trading their time for money, but the wealthy invest their money to provide themselves time. Their money earns for them whether they're working or not. And I think that understanding that capital can grow if it's invested. Um, again, it's not a novel idea, but when you see it on paper and someone reminds you that that's, that's a big deal. I mean, I made my first half of my career based on trading all my time. I worked 60, 80 hour weeks. I was on planes and trains and automobiles. I had one year where I rented a couch because I wasn't home. You know, um, people trade time thinking that if you just keep working harder, if you just get that next promotion, and we realize that the number one wealth builder is assets like real estate that compound and have all these other pieces. So I think rich dad, poor dad for that key piece is really, really um, important. Um, there's a thousand others on financial analysis and things like that that I think are really helpful. Um, but I think that's the number one to start with. Well, awesome. And foundations first. And um, and then you know, this has been a really, really good call. And I, I think I think as we as we wind down, uh, what would be the main way that uh, potential limited partners, business partners, or anyone who just wants to discuss and learn what you're working on, how could they get in touch with you? Yeah, I think the the best way is to visit our website, um, www.dwcapitalllc.com or investwithdw.com. Um, sign up for a newsletter. We have a bunch of educational content that comes out. Again, you know. Simple terms, if you're just starting out, IRRs, equity multiples, why does leverage work, all the fun things, um, as well as, you know, monthly newsletters. And then if it's uh, people who want a little more, we love to have one-on-one -on -one calls. My personal contact information is on the website, too. And, you know, I think that's a, that's the best way to get in touch. Awesome. And and, uh, and David, I think through, through this call, we've touched on a lot of golden nuggets, but just in case we didn't miss anything. Uh, is there any uh, any, any last remarks that you want to share with the audience before we call it a, a close for today? You know, this is this is obtainable to everybody. I'm I'm flattered to be on here, Natu. I really enjoyed our conversation. Um, I, I think I think uh, I've said what I, what I can say for here, and um, this has been a great experience. Thank you. Awesome. No worries. There you have it. That was David. Everyone, thank you for watching this show. And we'll have all of the contact information in the show notes. See you next time.